having a, uh, a genie and it's going to change you. Or you can just kind of rub your face on the Bible and you'll be different, right? It, 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 we're not saying that. That's, and that's not what, a, a biblical truth. But understanding the scripture and, and uh, executing, how, how would I put it? Speaking the truth in love in an organized way is, is not a lack of wisdom. Does that make sense? So as we jump in here, we look at, for example, as he kicks it off in verse 17, he says, and this is where this, the, the previous idea I was speaking of gets, comes from. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize and, uh, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, there's a history to this. Because remember, Corinth is a huge Greek town. Now it's Roman time, right? But, but they still are inundated with Greek culture. And if we're to look at Greek culture, what do they appreciate? They appreciate, I mean, if you look at like the statue of David, you know, whatever, the, all these, these statues, all these things from these different eras around that Greek time, they appreciated physique, Right? In fact, the Corinthians, we know, he even notes it. They say that Paul is weak in his appearance. One of the criticisms that they have for Paul is they say, your letters are really powerful, but your speaking and your, your appearance is very weak. Uh, church tradition or history, whether it's true or not, tradition is that Paul was kind of short and had a big nose. And so the Corinthians didn't appreciate that. The other things that they appreciated and Greek culture appreciated was orators. Right? If you recall back into Acts, when Paul goes to the Areopagus, uh, and again, this is Roman times, uh, but they still extract from Greek culture, and Romans, obviously, is from some of their art and all the phallic symbols and all that kind of stuff. They were super into physique and, and philosophy. And the, the commentary of the scriptures on the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, if you're more familiar with that, was that all they did at Mars Hill was sit around and talk and listen to philosophy. Remember that in, there in Acts? That's what they did. They just talked and listened to different philosophies. So what was really valuable in Corinth was physique and philosophy. And that's how they attributed and looked at people and orators. Now, what is Paul addressing? He just got done in the, in the verses in chapter 1 about talking about lifting up teachers, right? Now, is he saying that you can't like one teacher over another there in 1 Corinthians 1? No. There's, it's perfectly fine to say, I like to go into this podcast or to this website and I listen to this teaching because I, I understand it. Right? There's nothing wrong with that, right? We're, we're not saying like this is sin and you can't ever say that. No. It's perfectly legitimate to appreciate people that speak in a way that you can understand them. And that's, thank God, for other churches and other denominations in that way, right? Can you imagine if every church was the same and it was the one you didn't like? <laughs> right? Of course, we feel like, if I like it, it's what it should be. But that's not real. That's not how things work. We're going to have different opinions, different ideas, different appreciations. So he's not saying you can't like teachers. Because they say, well, I'm a Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. And, and he says, no, 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 Paul wasn't crucified for you. C Cephas, Peter doesn't save you. But it was normal for them to like him, right? Peter is a big, giant, fishing Jew. And people appreciated him. They appreciated his Judaism. They appreciated what he was, right? Paul is an intellectual. He lays out in Romans a court case of how salvation works, like no other author in the New Testament, right? So some people say, well, I'm of Paul. But the problem was that they began to elevate those teachers, and they said, I am of. And so now Paul is saying, look, when I came, I didn't come with eloquence. I didn't come trying to impress you. I didn't come as an orator. He's not saying that there's no skill in teaching. 
He's not saying that you can just get up and rattle off anything you want and people will just go, that's a huge blessing to me. It's not. It's right up there when you say, I'm depressed, and someone says, well, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord. And you go, well, thank you for that. I'm so much better now, right? And so he's, he, what he's saying is, when a person comes as the, in the modern, those times, historical times, and, and the, the, it's about the philosophy and the oration and the beauty, that that's a problem. That's what he's saying. You know, years ago, I went to a, a pastor's conference, and uh, this guy came, and he was like way better looking than me, way better skinny than me, and he had really nice skinny jeans on and was wearing denim when denim wasn't cool, even though it is cool. It's kind of hipster, I guess, now. I'm not really sure. Um, and he had, you know, fantastic hair and an entourage. And I'm not even trying to mock him. It's just that's, that's what it appeared to me. But I don't know his heart, and I mean that sincerely. And then he, he gave this message, and the message was about, um, about ah, 10 instances Eight instances in the scripture where birds landed. And he did this whole thing about making room for the Holy Spirit in your life because the Holy Spirit's like a dove, even though like half of them are crows and whatever. But it was like, let the, you know, and he was, he was an amazing orator. And so I'm standing outside with a bunch of pastors at Costa Mesa and, and the pastors, right? We're supposed to have maturity. It's weird. The pastors were all just like, that guy was so good. I thought, that's interesting. We're a bunch of pastors, and we're all standing outside talking about how good that pastor was. That, does that seem wrong? Seems wrong. It seems like we shouldn't be doing that. So the issue comes when we lift up and we idolize people that are able to use some sort of excessive eloquence to try to get a point across. And Paul says, I didn't want to do that. He didn't say, I just went willy-nilly. He doesn't say, I put nothing into my instruction. Remember, he was personally instructed by Jesus in a desert for years. He has time invested in the scriptures, right? So he's not saying that, but what he's saying is, I didn't come to try to impress you. I didn't come to try to make you like me. He says, I came to share with you the word of the cross, which is what? The word of the cross is the gospel. It's, that it's, it's not really even contained in that. It's the idea that not just that Christ died and rose again. That's, that's good news, right? Because the word of the cross ultimately is that when you and I we're separated from God and our sins. What does that mean? That we were experiencing really psychological and spiritual death on a daily basis. Hebrews puts it this way. We were enslaved to our fear of death. And, and how did it manifest itself? It manifests itself in rage because we would not be overtaken. It manifests itself in lust because we would not be denied. It manifests itself in sorrow because we're hopeless inside. Every day, slaves to the bondage of sin, not knowing it, or if knowing it, rejecting it. And he says that, or I should say, this word of the cross, this idea that Christ came and he lived on the earth, and all those things, all that sin and that fallen nature that we were sometimes blissfully, sometimes hatefully, sometimes in despair, experiencing and endorsing and walking in, he paid for it. He paid for the sin, right? So, so Paul says, I didn't want to try to wow you with cool allegory. And if you look at this cell, it looks like a cross. And that means, no. He said, when I came to you, I came to you with the simple truth of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us and what Calvary was about. That he came and he rose again from the dead. That the words in themselves, in a coherent sentence, that they're powerful. 
But it's not about all the pomp and circumstance. It's about just the words and the truth of the gospel. And he's, it's interesting because he says, I don't want to rob it of its power. Now, that's interesting because any, can anything really rob the cross of its power? I mean, is there some word that you could say, something you could do that all of a sudden the cross literally became powerless? No, right? I mean, the, the cross is always powerful. But how we relate to it can rob it of its power, right? How we treat it, how we consider it. In other words, the power is there. And this is the, honestly, this is the the vision and the picture that goes throughout the entire Bible. In all the teachings of Christ, even in the old covenant, the promises to Abraham and Isaac and the fellas, it's all the same. God says, I will do this for you if you let me. Isn't that always the message? I will save you if you let me. I will give you the land if you let me. I will bless your life with my presence, God says. I'll bless you, too, bless you too in my presence, but you know, if you let me. That's always his word. It's never, you're going to take this, you're going to, it's, it's I want to do this in your life. And he says, the word of the cross is robbed of its power when we try to have all this eloquence and wow people and make ourselves something. He says, I'm not going to do that. He says, I just preach to you the gospel, the word of the cross. He makes some, uh, some great commentary. In verse 18, he says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Now, have you ever wondered at that? <laughs> You're just like, what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody is somehow an, uh, an innocent victim and unbelief, and they're just like, that's stupid. The gospel is stupid. I think we have to understand who are the perishing. And, and for our context here, the perishing are unbelievers. If we were to go to his letter we just read, we went through last year in Romans, we're told who the perishing are. They're people that, in general, are willfully ignorant, right? That's who the perishing are. They're people that have attained some sort of light, he tells us in Romans 1 and 2, whether it's the light of creation, right? It says that he, it shows his invisible attributes, his eternal power, whether they've rejected that. They are people that are rebelling. They're just like us. We're not saying, oh, those people. They're, they're us before we were saved. I got saved when I was 16. I remember what I was like before I was saved. And I was very angry and very upset. I remember a couple times being downtown in California at a farmer's market and people coming to me with the gospel. And I was basically like, get that crap out of my face. I don't want anything to do with that. Like, what's your deal with your little Adam thing? And then he sinned, and now I'm a bad person because of it. Never mind the fact that I'm out fighting and ripping people off and doing whatever I want to do because I'm a good person. I don't need this. I've never killed anybody. That's like the national standard. I've never killed anybody. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's our standard of righteousness. All right. But you see what I'm saying? Like we, We have to understand that people that don't know Christ in general, I'm not making a judgment of everybody's heart and I'm not even making an argument to bring to the table are not just innocent unbelievers that just don't know. There are people, just like we do, even as Christians sometimes, that are persistently, purposely rejecting the light that God has given to them. And they're walking. Now, they're doing that, whether it's out of rebellion or whatever it might be. And there's, that's the thing. People are very complicated. People re- can reject church because of a bad experience, a legitimate bad experience. People can reject all sorts of things. But legitimately... When we continue to reject God, especially as unbelievers, we're doing it because we want to continue living in the life that we've created, even though we don't necessarily understand where true life is. And this is where actually Paul is going to go. He says the word of the cross is folly. Well, 
He's speaking to Romans. What do Romans do? Conquer the known world. What did the Greeks do? Conquer the known world. What did the Persians do? What did the Babylonians do? What did the Jews want? Conquer the known world. Their wisdom said that a dying Christ is weak sauce. It's foolishness. They didn't, they didn't accept it. They rejected it. You know, it's funny. Is that, that wisdom still around today? I wrote down just a couple of slogans as I was kind of thinking about it. Walk softly, but carry a big stick. You heard that? What is that saying? Well, you should be mellow until you're not. Right? That's what that saying is. Just be chill until it's time to get the big stick out. That's worldly wisdom, right? Is that the wisdom of Christ? No, it's not. So our world's wisdom is at odds with Jesus' wisdom. We have uh, Aleister Crowley, the most wicked man in England, right? He wrote this satanic Bible. He didn't call it that, but that's, do as thou wilt is the whole of the law, right? What does that wisdom say? True freedom is to do whatever you want to do to whomever you want to do. Aleister Crowley was originally expelled from Italy for being a pedophile. Then he went to England. Then he went to different countries. He was, he was a radically over-sexualized, just wicked man. And his wisdom was this. Do whatever you want to do. That's the whole of the law. To give life. The law of life. The law, the law of satisfaction. The law of humanity. Right? Not, what did Christ say? If you take up your cross daily, you'll find your life. Mm-hmm. So this wisdom is foolish to, to rebellious, to, to those who reject. Burger King, have it your way. <laughs> right? What does that communicate? You should have what you want. That's the wisdom of the world. Have it your way. Get what you want. And then the picture is never the same as what they give you. It's all a lie. (laughs) Right? Richard Dawkins, he's quoted as saying this. Richard Dawkins is kind of like the grand poobah of atheists, as it were. He's a biology instructor, I believe, at Oxford. I may be wrong on that, but he is a biology instructor. Biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. He's an atheist. But his quotation about his own teaching subject, his own area of expertise, is that the things appear to be designed, but there's just no way they could. Isn't that interesting? That sounds like willful ignorance, doesn't it? That sounds like an absolute rejection. I'd encourage you, and this might sound weird, I'd encourage you to, if if you are secure in your faith and you're willing to ask questions, you should listen to Richard Dawkins and Dan Danielson and those guys because they're ridiculous. Because the the webs they weave and their attempted eloquence to to try to disprove Christianity, it's a joke. Because we, through their entire presentations and all their rejection and all their rage, is basically this. God isn't who I want him to be, and it makes me mad, so I reject him. That's, the, that's kind of the bottom line. God loves them, but that's the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world is that, yeah, it looks like it was probably created, but it wasn't. This is Gandhi. Eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. No, it doesn't. It punishes evildoers. That's why it's in the law. That's why God said, if someone takes an eye, you take their eye. It wasn't in vengeance. It was basically the job of the elders of the town. 
And what it did is it incited fear. He tells us exactly why the eye for an eye and, and capital punishment was introduced in Israeli law. To put fear into the people and to purge sin from the camp. But this world's wisdom says God's stupid. And it manipulates the, the, the phraseology of the verse to try to make it out that what God said was wrong. When God said that he didn't say everybody should just poke everybody's eye out. He said if somebody wounds another person, that same wounding should be done to them. It would actually only make two people half blind. And then the rest of the people would be scared to not make someone else blind. But it's the wisdom of this world. Uh, in the 1960s, the uh, Green Berets got their motto, mess with the best and die like the rest. Right? What's that motto? We're amazing, and if you mess with us, we'll kill you. Right? So all these, these slogans of our modern day are this. Self-preeminence and executing my judgment and my violence on others. Right? That's this world's wisdom. They had the same wisdom. Remember in Mark chapter 3, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. It's one of my favorite stories. Remember that? The Pharisees are there. It's like the showdown at the OK Synagogue Corral. And there they are. And, the, you know, this guy with the withered hand. And Jesus heals his hand before he even lifts it up. And don't get me started. It's such a cool story. But he heals his hand. And what is the response of the Pharisees? we got to kill these fools. Right? We have to kill Jesus and this guy. And then where do they go? They go to the Herodians, people they hate, right? Pharisees are Orthodox Jews that were started about 250 years before Jesus to preserve Judaism amongst the Greek onslaught. And they come to a place in their desire, quote unquote, for God, that their answer to somebody in their synagogue healing someone else is, we have to team up with the people that have been oppressing us since the reign of the Romans and kill this guy doing miracles. Isn't that what sin does? Anytime someone else around us is righteous and we're in our sin, we're like, I just go away from me. We just try to make it cool and hipster. You're too cheery. Really? Too cheery? I'm just so disappointed in you. You're happy around me all the time. <laughs> that's, a, that's an us problem. That's not a them problem. Right? We, we hate it. That, that's the logic of this, the wisdom of this world. That dude healed someone. We have to kill him. The other logic in the Jews in their world is, remember with the centurion, where Jesus says of the centurion, he says, I haven't seen faith in all of Israel like this man. What's the response? Kill that guy. Kill Jesus. That's the wisdom of this world. It, it rages against and it responds to faith. It responds to the gospel. It responds to the simplicity of us having to humble ourselves to receive what God has out, you know, handed to us. And it, it rejects it. And it rejects it with vehemence because we're going to make our own way because we just will not believe, willfully will not believe that to lose our life, to take up our cross daily and to lose our life, we'll gain it. We just won't. And so he says, look, the word of the cross, God's wisdom is foolishness to those of us who are inundated and who are adopting worldly and human wisdom. He says, the second part of that, verse 18, he says, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
So in the second portion here, he says, look, the gospel is also the power of God for us being saved. Now, the scripture is interesting, right? Because it talks about that we got saved, right? Kind of in a past tense for believers that we got saved. And when we got saved, what does that mean when we say we, we got saved? What we're vocalizing is that we, us as an individual, put our trust in what Christ did at Calvary, right? That's what we're saying. We're saying we believed God for the free gift of salvation, which is the forgiveness of sins. But now we're also told that this cross, this shedding of blood, this event, this resurrection is now the, also the power, dunamis, and it's the same word in Romans, the same word in Acts chapter 2, that it's the power that's working in us to, as we are being saved, as our souls are being changed. Right? You've probably noticed that if you've been saved for more than about 10 minutes, that you needed some changing in your life. That you knew you were saved. You knew that there was now some sort of spiritual reality in you and someone speaking to you. And there was a forgiveness and a joy in these things. But then you probably promptly began to realize there is broken stuff in me. There is rage in me. There's envy in me. There's jealousy in me. There's lust in me. Whatever it might be. Self-serving uh, self-desiring, self-elevating realities that are just in there. I, don't, I didn't try to put them there. Uh, I don't necessarily work on having them there, but they are intrinsically who I am. And so now we are being saved. These things inside of us, who we are as we were formed by our old nature that we received from Adam, as we were formed by the world around us, those things need to be changed now. They need to be worked out. We need to adopt and allow the Holy Spirit to miraculously change us. So here's the thing. Just as the gospel was by the grace of God, by the cross, by the blood shed, so also is my sanctification, my being saved, or sanctification meaning being set aside. In other words, a, a process that is continually occurring in my life as I let the input of the Holy Spirit affect me. Does that make sense? Jesus put it uh, in different ways. He said in John 15, he talks about abiding. Uh, we know Paul who just talks about yielding. There in Romans 6, 7, and 8, yielding to Christ. So there's different language that's used in the scripture to, do, to define and to show the same event. And that is me on a moment-by-moment -moment basis listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, do I earn the Holy Spirit? Because he could have said that this power that is changing us or working us is not from the cross, it's from the law, right? Which is a very popular teaching in Christianity today. That if I do good and I am good, then God blesses me, right? It's notable in the health wealth movement. If I have enough faith and I tithe, then I'll get more money back, right? I mean, that's a common Christian teaching today. That if I have enough faith and I believe God, then God is more pleased with me. And that's a half-truth. And how, how do we see that manifested? Typically, we might see that manifested on a Sunday morning on how we worship. If we had a naughty week and we're on the naughty list, then we're just kind of like, oh, Jesus, you're kind of good. And we look at our feet and we're like, whatever. But if we had a good week and we had our devotions and we stayed away from sex, we're just like, woo! God, you're so good, right? And we feel bold and we feel like we can just get out there and everything's great. Why? Because we are now judging our interaction with God based on our sin, based on the law. I follow the law, therefore I have boldness with God. But that's not the new covenant, is it? The new covenant is that you have access. In fact, Hebrews 13 tells us we have access to the throne of grace when? In time of need. When do you need grace? Well, what's grace? It's favor, right? It's when, like, I just use this example. Every Sunday, I typically go home and sit somewhere in my house. 
whether it's on the couch and I watch TV or it's in a chair and I get on my computer or whatever it might be, whatever I'm doing. And you know what? Sometime during the day, I will probably ask Tam and be like, hey, will you make popcorn? I am going to continue to sit on my rear end and do nothing. And I'm going to ask you a favor. Isn't that right? Will you do me a favor? When you say to someone, will you do me a favor, what you're saying is, I'm about to offer you nothing, and I would like you to do something for me, right? Isn't that what a favor is? And so when we say that we have God's favor, it's that he literally favors you. He cares for you. He loves you. He likes you. When we say that we have favor from the cross, it's that we did nothing but sin our tushes off and Christ came and died for us. We rebelled, we did all these things, but he loves us and he died for us. That's what favor is. Grace is unmerited favor. So in Hebrews, we're told that we have grace, not obedience, not faithfulness, not any of those things. We have grace to come into God's throne room when we need grace. That's the goodness of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. It's why we are changed and how we do change. Not because we try so hard and then we just make ourselves better people. That's what quitting smoking does, okay? No, it's that God changes from the inside out. That we let the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, but what does it take? Honesty, doesn't it? Honesty. We have to first say, you know what, Lord, that's, that's, that's cancerous. That's toxic. That's rancid in me. And we don't blame it on the demon of porn, right? We don't blame it on the, the big bad devil. No, it's ours. We've got to own it. And we say, Lord, you see that, and yet you favor me. Isn't that one of the most grievous and blessed revelations of your life? Of when you've walked with Christ for one, two, three, 20 years, and you realize, I've always been a proud idiot. And God has always loved me. All those times that, that I thought I was humble and I wasn't. All those times that I treated people poorly because I thought I was so holy. All those times. But he still loved me. Because it was grace. That's why like a works-based salvation or a lordship salvation is a joke. It's an absolute joke. You're going to tell me that there's a human being on the planet saved Jesus that lived good enough and holy enough that they would get to heaven and be like, well, you did a good job. You didn't need much grace. You only came to the throne of grace like four times. Come on in. It's a joke. So the cross, the power of the cross, it's it's foolishness to this world because they're getting theirs in rebelliousness, in, in fear, in anguish, and in pride. They're getting theirs. And so the idea of a, of a humble Savior that asks for a, a humble invitation into his life, it's a just folly. But to us who are being saved, we say there's no other way. There's no other way that I could actually approach God's altar, that I could come to his throne. There's no other way. And anything else, honestly, would be blasphemous. To say I was good enough this week to worship Jesus. Ha! None of us. But to say, you know what, God, you've been so gracious to me. You've always received me back to yourself. You've always had me welcomed me. You're so kind to me. It's the power of God that adds to us who are being saved. Then he goes on and he's quoting Isaiah 29. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Remember, this is a quote 
And you go back and read it for yourself. It's kind of an interesting story. So what happens is, essentially, Israel is about to get attacked, right? Remember Israel, who God said, hey, if you trust me, and you grab a spear, and you fight people, I will always give you victory, right? Can we just kind of boil down the promises to that, right? If you're willing to get up and grab your spear and your sword, I will give you victory, right? It's the same promise for us. A little bit different. We don't claim the church, or we don't claim the, the Israel, Israeli promises, but... God says the same thing. If you walk with me and you yield me your life, you will have amazing fruit in your life, right? So it's a very similar promise in that way. So to Israel, he said, look, I'm going to give you all this land. And he said it to Abraham and he said it to Isaac and to Jacob and, you know, there's a mosaic, all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, he says, if, if you just walk with me and you trust me, I'll do this for you, right? In fact, I, I love that. Abraham was declared righteous not because he believed God for the forgiveness of his sins. You ever notice that? God just said, here's what I'm going to do, Abe. I'm going to make you a great nation, and all the world's going to be blessed for you. And Abe's like, no, okay. And God goes, okay, you're right with me because you trusted me for that. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Why do we try to make it all weird and big and like, well, it's crazy. It was really simple. Anyway, I don't want to get too distracted. So in this, in, in this old covenant, he says to Israel, hey, anywhere you put your foot, anywhere you walk with me, it's going to be yours. So they've, they've, been, they've got part of the land. They've conquered part of the land. And they're starting to besiege, be besieged by other nations. And so what they do is they run to Egypt. And they say, hey, can we count on you to help us fight these other people of the land? And Egypt says, yes, you can, for lots of gold. And they go, okay. And so they take a bunch of gold from where they shouldn't have taken it from and all sorts of stuff, and they, they give that. So this quote, this is 2914. This quote is when God sends Isaiah back to them. And he says, you tell them. I'm going to crush them. They're going to lose this battle. And he says, they're going to lose the battle because I'm going to destroy your wisdom. Your wisdom was not to trust my promise, not to come back to me when I said I would do great things for you. Your wisdom was to go get the help of Israel. And, he, and, and as, a, as a good father, he says, I will not allow you to prosper for too long with poor judgment. You're going to need to know who I am to you, Israel. So when you reach out to these other unsanctioned, if you will, options for your protection and your growth, I'm going to destroy it. And that's what happens. And so Paul's reaching back to that instance, and he's quoting it to them, saying, look, God has always operated this way. It has always been that he is destroying the wisdom of the wise, that our best wisdom in the natural which is self-centered. I mean, there's some great quotes out of James if you want to research it more. But our best wisdom in the natural is worthless when it comes to the things of God. Then in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now there again, to relate back to our introductory point, he is not saying that God does never saves smart people. Right? He's not saying that. Because Paul is like a genius. Right? I mean, if you read it, well, he was inspired by the Spirit. Yeah, he was inspired and then educated by the top teachers in Judaism. He was, I mean, the guy's super intelligent. So Paul is not making a point that, like, everybody who God saves is a moron. He's just making the point that our wisdom that we can come up with, which the list we read, can never match what God wants to do. It can't be done. So he, anyway, back to this. He says, look, where are these guys? There's nothing. Even Richard Dawkins, 
right? One of the, the, the top intellectual of our world says, well, it looks like everything's made, was designed, but it wasn't. That's where the top intellectuals and the debaters of this world are. They're lost in rebellion. They're lost in knowing intrinsically that there is some creator out there, at the very least, who has eternal power and glory, as revealed by nature. This guy studies nature, Richard Dawkins says. He knows it. And yet in his hardness of heart, I'm assuming, I mean, I don't know his heart, but just from what he seems to communicate, he rejects it. So that's where the debater of this age is. And he says, has not God made foolish? Literally, that's the, the Greek word is like moros or like moron. Has, uh, has God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, uh, for, excuse me, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So in God's wisdom, what he's saying is God designed something. Because he is wise, which is wisdom is the proper application of knowledge, right? So knowledge is knowing something. But wisdom is taking that knowledge and applying it, right? So what he says is, as God properly applied his knowledge, which seems pretty vast, he he applies that knowledge, he designed something that the world could not know, gnosko, could not know through experience, could not experience God through its own wisdom. Now, think back to the example of the Israelis with the Egyptians, or think back to an example of your life where you chose or I chose to do something we knew was not what God had for us because we thought it would be in some way self-preserving, whatever it might be. We didn't break off a relationship that God said we should break off. We didn't uh, spend our money wisely. We didn't, you know, we drank too much LBT, you know, whatever it might be. Something that we chose that we decided, hey, we're not going to do that. Think back to that. Did that help you experience God? Maybe experience discipline, but it didn't help us experience God. So he's saying, in God's wisdom, he designed an entire system of salvation that negates man's wisdom. You don't have to be smart or wise to get saved. You just have to trust Jesus. He goes on to say this. He says, uh, it pleased God. So this is what, it pleased God. He's happy about this. It pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So it pleased God to present the lowliness of the gospel, the foolishness of the Savior that died instead of conquered. Now, and he's going to go on. Verse 22, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now, why is it a stumbling block to Jews? They focused on the promises that revolved around victory, right? They didn't focus on Isaiah 53, that he'd be despised and rejected. Isaiah 53 is fascinating. It even tells us he's, he was plain. He had no attractiveness to him. He wasn't like the Jesus Fabio that you see in all the paintings. He was unattractive. I mean, it says that. It's kind of wild. It says that there was nothing in him that we would want to look upon him. He didn't walk down the street in some sort of natural beauty, and people were like, dang. None of that happened. It says that he was actually despised and afflicted, one whom we turn our eyes from. You ever turned your eyes from someone like begging or something like that? And you just go, I don't want to look at that. Isaiah 53 says that's what Jesus was like. It's kind of wild. So they didn't do that. They didn't look at Psalm 22 and embrace that, that he would be, as it were, allegorically surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, that he would be crucified. They didn't look at Psalm 22. They didn't look at any of those. They didn't harbor those. They looked at the dominant Jesus. Even the disciples did, right up to the point when the Spirit comes. What's the question they ask? They asked Jesus right there in Acts, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to us? 
They're literally asking, are you going to whoop the Romans now? I mean, you did your die resurrecting. Can we get on with it? Can we destroy the Romans now? Even the, the, the Big 12 didn't understand entirely what the wisdom of God was in this. So he's, he, he's making this point that it's a stumbling block to Jews. They just could not get down with the suffering Savior. It, was, it, was a, it made them trip. And then it was folly to Gentiles. We've talked about that, their priorities in the, in the Roman Greek world. But to those who are called, now, who are the called? The called, we know this from Romans chapter 8. Called people are saved people. They're people that God foreknew that would choose him, right? Not that he chose them. And then, and then essentially, uh, we're, not, we're not talking about tulip here, that somehow they, they were just chosen so that the gospel made sense to them. No, it's those whom he foreknew, those that would choose him. So those are called, they're saved people. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Christ is the picture of God's wisdom, the suffering servant, the give life to get life, the, 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 to lay down our lives to experience joy, all that, it's all found in Christ. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's the foolishness of God in our context? It's the cross. The foolishness of God in Christ is wiser than anything a human being could ever come up with, is what Paul is saying. Remember, this is all in reference to their church and what's going on there. That they're choosing uh, leaders and lifting them up and these different things. That they're, that they're prioritizing themselves over one another. That they're glorifying themselves. So even as Christians, they're rejecting this wisdom. And now Paul is writing, saying, no, no, no. This is how wisdom works. To humble oneself and to love God and, and to, to, to walk with him, to receive from him, and then to give to others. This is the wisdom that God has always had and what it's always been. He's going to go on there in verse 26, and we'll go through this real quick. He just says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose the low and the despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing, uh, bring to nothing the things that are. Now, this is not, we have to be careful here. Because he is not saying intelligent people can't be saved, right? He's not saying, he's just saying, look around and be honest. Were you super esteemed? In fact, where he says uh, the things that are not or um, what is low and despised, literally low born, of no nobility is what he's saying there. He's saying, look, God just saves individuals. And you don't have to be high born. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be any of that. Now, why is it that God can use people like us? We're not the smartest. We're not the fastest. We're not the bravest. Why is it that he can use people like us to communicate a powerful word about his cross? Why is that? What's different? If we're not smarter than the world, if we're not more noble than the world, if we don't have more power than the world in the natural, then how could we make a difference in the world? How could we do it? I think if you look, because as we've been talking, right, the whole time we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit working in our lives, us responding to the Spirit. When we look at what the fruit of the Spirit is, number, the first portion of it, it's one fruit, but it's it's love. I see the wisdom of man has no love. The wisdom of this world, even in love, it's selfish, isn't it? When we choose a spouse, we choose a spouse because 
We like them because they're good to us. And that's not bad. But if you think about that for a second, does anybody except for maybe, uh, what was it? Was it Hosea? Who chose, the, who chose Gomer? Who was it? Hosea? Yeah. Aside from Hosea, who God said, hey, I want you to marry this hooker, we all marry people we liked. Right? Why is the divorce rate amongst Christians 54%? Because when we don't like them, we kick them to the curb. Right? I mean, it's, it's, I'm simplifying. Obviously, there's, there's more difficulty than that. But when we interact with people, we interact with all the time, just what we like and who we like and what, what response was it. All I'm saying is that in our love, outside of Christ, we could be committed, we could be all those things, but at its core, it cannot be anything but self-serving. And part of our Christian life is moving away from that carnal Christianity, that carnal life of serving what suits me. And so when, when we're looking at this and Paul's talking about it, he's just saying, look, God chose a way that anyone could get saved and that anyone can communicate the power of the cross. And ultimately, it's not going to be in law. It's not going to be in philosophy. It's not going to be because we know Ken Ham's presentation inside and out. It's not because we can point to every place on the map where that points to the fact that the world you know, had a flood 4,400 years ago. It's not because you know the 15 layers of secret Hebrew. It's none of that. There's not 15 layers of secret Hebrew, by the way. It's just weird teachings that people get into right? It's going to be because you love people. Because that's going to be Christ in you. That's going to be God through you. And, and, and the simplest word from a human being to another human that comes from a place of love and service is worth more than a million words of eloquence, isn't it? I mean, think about in your own life and the relationships you have, platonic or otherwise. A simple card that just says, I'm thinking about you. I care about you. Or, or we text now. Whatever it might be. But just a simple message to say, hey, you're on my mind. I'm praying for you. How much does that mean to you? Probably quite a bit. Or someone who just, who, who, who just helps you out just because they do. You don't have to be super wise. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to have all your ducks in a row. You don't have to be perfected in Christ. You just have to say, okay, I'll do that. Okay, Lord, I'll do that. So all of a sudden, you and I, we have this incredible influence on the world around us. It's not because we're taking Washington by storm, right? We're not going to vote all the people we want in or, you know, we can't even agree on that. It's going to be because we go down to SIDS and, and buy our fried chicken. You guys probably don't buy fried chicken. You're probably too healthy, but I do now and again. And we say, how are you doing? I'm sorry to hear that. Would you, would you be interested in, in prayer? if there's no line, right? And they can be like, no, loser. I'm like, all right, cool. Can I have my chicken? You know, whatever. Or that you'll be, you'll be surprised because most people say, yeah, you know, I will take that. I will take that. It can be just having old friends where we don't rage on them, having new friends we don't rage on. I'm sorry that that happened, but hey, we can work through that. It can be in our church dealing with one another when we sin against each other and we say, you know what? I'm not just going to leave and go somewhere else. I'm going to work through this with you. That really hurt, but I think we can find healing together. Because Christ said we can. Right? All of a sudden, this word of the gospel, it becomes so powerful and so strong. And, and it's through us weak people. Because it's Christ in us. It's us just yielding to that power, to that love that God has. He says there uh, in verse 30, And because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The bottom line is this. Christ is our all in all, right? We are made more like him because of him. We are saved because of him. We are able to interact in healthy ways because of him. We are able to build each other up because of him. He is our all in all. He's everything. And all our job, right? You have one job. Our one job is that when he comes to us in his Holy Spirit, through his word, through a sister or a brother in Christ or whatever it is, and, and encourages us in some way, we say, okay. When he says, I want to make a gradation of you, you go, that's weird, but okay. Right? When he comes to you and says, hey, I'd like to spend a little time with you in the morning just so we could talk a little bit. And sometimes you'll get something and sometimes you'll think, why did I do this? And we go, okay. Okay, I'll do that. When he says, hey, you should probably cut that out of your life. And you go, I don't want to do that, but okay. Or you find someone else and say, God's calling me to cut this out of my life and I don't really want to. Will you, will you pray with me? And he says, that power will be generated, generate something in you. It will change your life and it will change the life of those around you. Can you imagine what every relationship in our life would be like if we just like listen to Jesus? Especially when he's like, don't say that. And you're like, right? How many times has that gotten us in trouble? And the list goes on and on. But God has great things for you. Amazing things for you. He's got a calling for you. Some way to minister, something to, to help and build his kingdom. And that's, that's what 1 Corinthians is all about is, hey, let's not walk according to our own appetites and try to satisfy and fill ourselves because that'll bring life. It'll bring death. Instead, it's, hey, let's just lay down our lives, lay down our arguments, lay down those things. Christ will take care of us. We'll be okay, and we'll have great power in, in, for joy and for peace for us and for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness. Lord, you're very good to us. And Lord, we just acknowledge that we have no idea where we'd be if it wasn't for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, I pray that your hand would be heavy upon us. As the psalmist said, that when we walk in our disobedience, that our bones would be dried up, that our strength would be sapped like the heat of summer. But Lord, we pray as we turn back to you that we'd know that life, that, that true, wonderful, joyful life. I pray, Lord, that we would live in a way that uh, doesn't try to get out of suffering, but overcomes it. Lord, you're so good. We appreciate it. Pray for your filling of your Holy Spirit this week. Pray for uh, opportunities to talk to people about you and to love people practically. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.